0: May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. As just about everyone knows, with the clear exception of my three children, writes Donna Shaper, there are some things you just don't do in church. You don't travel under pews. Which I, which I did my fair share of as a child. You don't laugh during hymns. You don't wave at your friends. In church, one behaves with respect. One dresses appropriately. Appropriately, Shaper continues, appropriately even extends too often to keeping quiet when you don't like what's going on. You are not to interrupt the minister even if he bores you, which fortunately never happens here. (laughs) Inappropriate, says Shaper, covers a lot of sins. Living in the American South, there is no shortage of understood, though more often unexpressed, behaviors that we deem appropriate or inappropriate. When I was growing up, I frequently heard, don't run in church. No one ever said why this was forbidden. I just assumed God hated speedy children. We all know to be careful where we sit when we're visiting a new church. God may be all forgiving, but that seat and that pew is Mrs. Johnson's who has sat there since before time. And that dismal-looking person who yanks their head in the direction of the crying child reminds us that children are not permitted to cry in church, as though we somehow expect children to be children everywhere except in church. It's a bit like getting upset when a skunk smells or birds fly or when a dog barks, all of which are perfectly fine so long as it happens where I am not. Now, I know what you're all thinking. He can't be talking about me. And he's right. People need to be more self aware. Those kids are going to knock someone over. That person should have asked before sitting in my seat. Or I can't believe he's wearing those shoes. We all do it. At least we've all done it at some point. How could we not? We all grew up with some imposed expectations about what is inappropriate or appropriate. Many of us have paid therapists a lot of money to deal with the inappropriateness of the appropriate behavior we acquired growing up. What remains unclear is whether or not what we and our society deem appropriate is getting us any further along on the way of love. Our gospel reading today finds Jesus caught in the middle of what the clerical elite of his day deemed appropriate behavior. One can only imagine that Jesus had a habit of wearing shorts in the synagogue, laughing during the Psalms, waving to anyone who walked in late, and he's sure to have always sat in somebody else's seat. probably. With a crying child bouncing on his knee. I have no evidence that any of this is remotely true, but it certainly feels true based on the reactivity of the Pharisees met with my own experience serving in the church. To make matters worse, Jesus has the audacity, the audacity to tell yet another parable that unmasked the facade of Pharisaical appropriateness. Just before our parable today, the Pharisees, writes Matthew, are trying to figure out how to capture Jesus without unsettling the crowd. After telling the parable, Matthew says that those same Pharisees huddled together to see if they could get Jesus to perjure himself. What the Pharisees deemed inappropriate is that Jesus, a nobody prophet from a backwater village, would dare challenge their authority, their interpretation, their way of life. Jesus had not received his training in one of the accredited Hebrew schools. He was an outlier. This is not appropriate. To put it in the words I so often heard my mother say, the Pharisees believed Jesus to be too big for his britches. There is a naming taking place with Jesus and the Pharisees that has been named in various ways in every generation, with many responding in the same way as the Pharisees. God has called us into the reality of heaven here on earth, and we would settle for what is appropriate. The great wisdom teacher Sat Prim says that our uh, says of our spiritual journey and formation that if you are thirsty, the river comes to you. If you are not thirsty, there is no river. If you are thirsty, the river comes to you. If you are not thirsty, there is no river. Or to put it in Jesus' own words, whoever drinks from the water that I shall give will most definitely never thirst. For the water that I shall give will become in you a fountain springing up to life eternal." Whether we desire, however, whether we are thirsty is key. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be sated. And while it may sound trite or oversimplified to suggest that one who is well has no need of a physician, what Jesus consistently teaches is that it is when we thirst, it is when we hunger, when we desire to be made well, that the fountain, the feast, and our wellness come to us. And as the author of The Cloud of Unknowing reminds, in the trying is the desire, in the seeking we find doors open when we knock on them. What we are thirsty for becomes our drink, that for which we hunger becomes our food." What Jesus is naming in this parable is that we, like the Pharisees, are often satisfied with where we are. Who needs to go to a wedding banquet when every meal feels like a feast? Who needs to go to the king's dinner party when my status in society is already secure? Why should I question the political economic structures of society that have made my comfortable life possible? This was and is the invitation of Jesus, an invitation that questions our indifference to how things are, our indifference to what culture deems appropriate, to what those in power say is impossible. A crucial aspect of this parable is the reality that God comes to those who come to God just as they are. God comes to those who come to God just as they are. If I'm waiting to get my life together before I become honest and vulnerable with God, I'm never going to get honest and vulnerable with God. It's analogous to every couple who says they're going to wait until they get all their ducks in a row before they have children. Apparently, they want to get the dominoes neatly arranged so they can all fall down at the same time. You're never, those of us in the room who have had children, you're never ready for the joy and terror of having children until you have them. You're never ready to quit your job and do what you love until you do. You're never ready to meet God face to face until you stop pretending and open yourself to the God who became vulnerable with us that we might become vulnerable with God. It is easy for us to remain indifferent to Jesus' invitation to the way of God's kingdom if we do not feel thirsty, hungry, or sick. Jesus' parable illumines for us the topsy-turvy nature of this kingdom, and this is surely what the Pharisees found most agitating. The king extends his invitation, however, and when no one comes, the king does something most inappropriate. He invites everyone off the street." This doesn't necessarily strike our modern ears as something dramatic or even more than a metaphor. However, Jesus' first hearers would have known that no one simply enters the inner walls of the kingdom to dine with the king. This place is reserved only for lords and special friends of the king. To dine at the table of the king is to be elevated to the same status as landowners. In this instance, Jesus' parable that raises up the lowly and puts down the mighty from their seat, directly implicating the Pharisees, portrays a God who deems neither the sinless nor the wise to be fit for the kingdom. Rather, it is those who are honest about their poverty, honest about their hunger, honest about how they have attempted to quench their thirst with what others deem appropriate yet remain parched. It is for those who desire no longer to hide from who they are so they can become who God is making them to be. Jesus makes the inappropriate claim that God welcomes anyone and everyone who hungers and thirsts for more than what culture deems appropriate, any who desire to be sated by God. But what about the matter of judgment in this parable? As we've learned, Jesus' parables do not always provide the closure that we're looking for. This parable has the king slaughtering anyone who refuses the invitation, and after filling the banquet hall with the riffraff of society, the king wanders over and banishes someone for not wearing a wedding robe. This king sounds awfully temperamental. And yet, Jesus' first hearers would have known that to deny the king's invitation— was effectively to wage war on the king, and those coming into the hall would have received a robe if they did not have one. So, where did this one's robe go? This is not a parable, by the way, about dressing well in church, as I've heard some explain it. This is a parable about the wedding garment we have all received. We have all received the garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness. This is the revelation of Jesus, that we bear within us the wellspring of God. The longing for God is at the core of our nature. This is our wedding robe. It is indifference to the invitation to have our hearts transformed that leads us to set aside our robe, forsaking our true nature hidden with Christ in God, as we give ourselves to food that will only make us more hungry, not food that satisfies our souls. Our world is hurting, and I do not pretend to know the complexity of the history, turmoil, and strife that continues to wreak havoc on the people of Gaza. It's mind-boggling to me that the whole of Israel is half the size of the state of Tennessee, and yet it has been the locus of much tension and violence throughout history. And it grieves my heart to see so much pain distributed across this region and to what end. I am pro-Palestine. I often hear people say after they visit this region. I'm pro-Israel. I hear just as many say. The challenge that I see in Gaza, the challenge I see in the Ukraine, the challenge I see in just about every other region of the world is a polarization, a binary way of seeing the world that assumes there are two sides, one on the left and one on the right. In our oscillating from left to right, we so often fail to look up or even to look down, to see from higher ground or to look from below with the eyes of humility. When we look only from side to side, only seeing the left and the right, we miss the fuller human picture. We fail to see that what divides person from person, nation from nation, religion from religion, is the inner conflict of our own hearts. Until I am unconflicted in my heart, I will remain in conflict with my neighbor, whether my neighbor is Palestinian, Israeli, or simply whoever's living next door. We will never find a peaceful resolution to the quarrels of nations until each of us knows peace within our own hearts. And the only thing stopping us is our unwillingness to take responsibility for ourselves, our unwillingness to pull out the log from our own eyes, our disbelief, that God can change the human heart when it is shown love and grace by another heart that God is likewise transforming. This is when the matter of appropriateness falls away. This is when indifference dies as we move toward those with whom we might feel uncomfortable root out our inner conflict as the peaceful breath of the Spirit flows from our lips, bringing about transformation in our relationships, transformation among nations, transformation on the earth. The way of love, grace, and forgiveness may not be the responses this world deems appropriate for peace among nations, it may not be the response that those around us would have us choose for our relationships. And yet love, grace, and forgiveness are the only responses that lead us into becoming fully human, fully alive in the aliveness of the Spirit of God at the heart of creation, at the center of our own hearts, at the center of all things. Amen.